When we tell ourselves it's not okay to be sad, when we tell ourselves it's not okay to be scared, it's not okay to be worried, that is sort of then what leads from quite a normal adaptive sadness into maybe more of like a clinical depression. You're listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. In each episode, we discuss mental health topics related to the experience of being a student and share the struggles and joys of taking care of your mental health while in college. Before we get started, just a few notes on today's content. The views expressed here only reflect our opinions and don't represent the CWC or the University of Florida or the mental health professions as a whole. Additionally, some content may be sensitive for students who have experienced trauma. Please reach out if you need additional support. In this episode, Dr. Sarah Nash and Dr. Ryan Barbeau discuss perfectionism. So welcome to the show, Ryan. I'm so excited to have you here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I wanted to invite you to start out today by telling us a little bit more about what it is you do and your background and also... Um, I'm aware that you're a professor. Maybe talk to us a little bit about the courses you teach. Yeah, sure, of course. Um, So my degree, my doctoral degree is in clinical psychology, but I've done most of my my clinical work in counseling centers. That's where I did my doctoral internship. And then I've been at UF for, I think, seven or eight years now working at the Counseling and Wellness Center. Um, And I'm also a professor um, at Santa Fe College. I teach abnormal psychology, psychology of personality, um, and developmental psychology. So I kind of like having those two different aspects of my career. I feel like um, certainly the clinical work I do gives me good um, real-life experiences to share with my students. And then when I teach, I feel like that keeps me kind of sharp in terms of my kind of foundational knowledge and skills when I do, when I do clinical work. So I really enjoy, um, you know, both of those roles. So as we get started, um, I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about how, maybe let's start here, that students often, what brings them into counseling is that they are in pain or uncomfortable, um, distressed, and that, that, something doesn't feel okay for them. And I'm curious how often students come in and have already diagnosed themselves with like a mental illness or, or, you know, mental health condition. Yeah, I see that a lot. I see that they're oftentimes in distress and they've in some form or fashion sort of labeled that distress as something that's bad and that's problematic and that they want to go away. So sometimes they'll even use kind of more clinical terms like calling it depression or calling it anxiety, or sometimes they won't, but oftentimes there's this sense that they have something about them that they want to be rid of because it's getting in the way of something that they think they want to, or they ought to be doing better. Um, yes. I think if you look at it in, in, in that way, it makes sense the kind of the quick fix sort of idea that sort of the idea that, well, the quicker we can get this to go away, the better. So I think that's often kind of the mentality that, um, that they have. And I can certainly sort of appreciate that if I'm in distress and not feeling good or feeling like something's impeding my progress. Um, I can definitely relate to that idea of wanting it to go away so I can continue with what I want to or ought to be doing. What, what else might you explore with a student? Um, what other perspectives might we explore that distress from? 
if not the quick fix, make this go away as soon as possible. Just, just make it stop. Yeah. Sometimes I'll, one of the analogies I often share, um, with, with folks I work with is the idea that if you touched a hot stove that you're, um, you know, what would that be like? Right. It would really burn and your hand would really hurt. And what if there was like a pill you could take that means that you would never sort of feel that again, that you could just touch any hot stove you wanted and you would never feel any physical discomfort. And they can usually um, pretty easily pick up on where I'm going. The idea that, yeah, it would be appealing not to have any physical discomfort, but that would actually be a really dangerous thing, right? You would leave your hand on the stove, it would get burned, it would get damaged. Although physical discomfort is uncomfortable, it serves like a very important adaptive function. And I kind of make the analogy that emotional, psychological discomfort is the same way. But oftentimes um, there isn't a quick fix for what they're coming in with. But even if there were, it probably wouldn't be the best idea because that emotional, psychological um, discomfort, pain, whatever label you want to use is often an important piece of data or information. And if we can find a way to um, explore that, um, oftentimes it'll be actually, you know, something we're really thankful for at the end of the day because it kind of can guide us and lead us towards um, different kind of therapeutic changes that might be beneficial for us in the long run. Um, I'm listening to you, um, you know, and remembering back when I was a student and maybe 20, 21 years old going through a really hard time of my own and thinking on one hand, you know, if I was coming in to talk to you for the first time and you shared that with me, I would feel a lot of relief hearing you say that, that maybe there was some, um, something useful in my suffering that we could, that we could together learn about. But then on the other hand, just feeling like, wow, that sounds like a lot of work. You know, I thought, I thought you were the doctor and you were just gonna, you were just gonna fix it the way that maybe a doctor gives me an antibiotic and my, you know, my, my, my sickness goes away. My physical sickness goes away. Yeah, I think that's a common reaction and I can relate to that um, myself. Even now, it's very easy for me to look back and think about times of distress that I've had, you know, maybe five years ago and 10 years ago, and then to see it through that lens of kind of the growth and development that came from that. But any concerns I might currently be having, um, it's much more difficult to kind of project into the future and imagine how I might look back on it um, five or 10 years from now. But actually, that kind of leads into then sometimes um, a method that I found to be helpful is to actually ask people to do a little bit of that um, sort of pretending like they were five years in the future, 10 years in the future, and trying to look back on their current circumstance. And that's easier said than done. Um, but sometimes even maybe writing it out or, um, you know, some kind of journaling, you know, from that perspective of an older self can kind of help break us out of the tunnel vision that we often can have when we're kind of like stuck in our current in our current distress. What are some of the other ways to begin to approach, uh, you know, someone who's suffering and doesn't necessarily, hasn't fully discovered the potential, you know, gifts in the suffering or the the opportunities in the suffering? Can you tell me a couple of other ways you might? So let's say I I was like, I don't know, Ryan, that just, that still sounds like a lot of work. Um, 
are you sure you can't just make this go away? What are, what are some other ways you might try to help me take a different perspective as we work together? Yeah, absolutely. I like to um, oftentimes differentiate between sort of the initial emotional feeling and reaction a person has and then the sort of reactions they have to that reactions. So what kind of thoughts they have about their own thinking or what kind of emotions they have about their own emotions. Um, one way I'll sort of explain it is that um, being sad, being disappointed, being worried, being scared, these are all, um, you know, kind of evolutionarily evolved aspects of our human experience. And again, it would be maladaptive if we didn't have those things. Um, but when we tell ourselves it's not okay to be sad, when we tell ourselves it's not okay to be scared, it's not okay to be worried, that is sort of then what leads from quite a normal adaptive sadness into maybe more of like a clinical depression or, a, you know, a normal adaptive kind of worry into a more kind of clinical um, sort of anxiety. So oftentimes what I'll say is we actually can get pretty quick relief from that sort of like secondary reaction that's kind of exacerbating the response. Because if you stop beating yourself up for being a human being and having these natural reactions, then we'll kind of get you out of that sort of um, kind of more um, debilitating kind of clinical symptoms of depression or anxiety. Yes, you're gonna still have that initial disappoint, disappointment or, or, or worry or concern that's innate in the human experience, but I think that's more manageable. We can work on that. So I don't have a silver bullet for that, but I think we can get pretty quick relief from the, the kind of the secondary reactions you're having, maybe like, um, you know, meta emotions, if you want to use that term. Like feeling um, bad about feeling bad. Exactly, right. And I think that they're actually, I can offer folks oftentimes, or not necessarily offer, I've, I've seen, you know, sometimes even in one meeting, that to, to resolve pretty quickly, right? That feeling bad about feeling bad. And we're still stuck with that initial feeling bad and not to invalidate that. And that's still something to work on. But there's a tremendous amount of relief that at least comes from not beating yourself up about a human being, or at least kind of like softening that feeling bad about feeling bad type of piece. You talk about not beating myself up and like softening around being a human being, like bringing some acceptance to those, those initial feelings and reactions. I find myself thinking about our theme today of perfectionism and just kind of where, where does, um, where do you think we, we, where do you think we start beating ourselves up for our human experience or like why do we do that where does that come from how do we get to a point where we um we think there's something wrong with us for having um you know having those emotions of sadness and fear and worry and um disappointment loneliness yeah that's a really good question in fact that's often uh a question I like to pose to people because I think sometimes there can be individual or I think often probably always there's there's differences in terms of how that develops for people and I feel like actually that usually leads to a lot of kind of rich exploration um, you know sometimes there's certainly um, kind of societal factors at play or cultural factors at play or, or family factors at play so kind of anything that exists out there can kind of be um, internalized um, for us you know, so I think that um, so there's all sorts of different ways that that 
that can happen. One thing that I think that maybe um, kind of regardless of some of those family differences and cultural differences, just living in a society where um, kind of nowadays advertising is kind of, you know, they use lots of data collection and algorithms to figure out exactly what kind of buttons to push for which type of person to make the person feel insecure so they buy their product. So us all kind of living in that ecosystem, I think it's just kind of natural that we we have um, kind of chronic feelings of not being good enough that are kind of very easily easily triggered. I was thinking it's interesting to me that at a time when um, college students have been using counseling services at higher rates and people have talked about that, that some of the stigma around mental health and seeking mental health has gone down. So we're seeing higher rates of students reaching out um, that, that often, even though, even though mental health seems to be at least more widely acknowledged as important, uh, there's still there's a there's still a stigma uh, against having difficult feelings or having having a crisis or having pain. There's still a stigma fundamentally about that. Yeah, when you say that, it's interesting what comes to mind for me, and this is something I you know I generally talk about when I teach my abnormal psychology class is that um, you know the DSM is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual published by the American Psychiatric Association that's used by mental health professionals when, when we're giving diagnoses. And for depression, it's now in the fifth edition, and in DSM-4, there used to be something called the bereavement exclusion for depression. And in DSM-5, they took that out. And um, you know, it, was, it was kind of a complicated, you know, somewhat controversial decision. And on the one hand of it, um, there's a pretty, I think, understandable rationale is that, that mental health professionals were saying that, well, when people lose a loved one, we want to be able to work with them and provide service and care for them. And if we're not able to diagnose depression, then that might make it difficult if we're working in a setting where we need insurance reimbursement to be able to get that reimbursement to provide care for people. So on the one hand, that's a really understandable um, rationale. But on the other hand, um, critics of it say, well, there's kind of an implication there that if you lose a loved one, that you shouldn't have any of these sorts of reactions, which might be criteria of depression. And if you really kind of think about that, it's sort of interesting because what if I told you that someone just lost a loved one and they just proceeded the next day as if nothing had happened, you might actually see that as sort of a red flag, right? Like, well, what's wrong with this person? If they're a human being and they just lost a loved one, something that's really close to them, you'd sort of expect some sort of grief process. You know, I, I certainly would see that as a red flag if I saw someone not experiencing any sort of sort of grief process. So like I said, on the one hand, there's sort of progress in terms of normalizing and providing access to care. On the other hand, there's sort of this implication that we should be robots. And if we lose a loved one, we shouldn't, you know, don't have, get to, don't be yeah. sad, you know, don't yeah. be sad for any prolonged period of time, which, exactly. right. So that even in, inadvertently, I wonder if our own, you know, my belief is that our own field has sometimes contributed to that message that, um, you know, if you're, if you're struggling, if you're suffering, that there must be, there must be something wrong with you. And that, that I wonder if we could talk a little bit about little bit more deeply about uh, culture and 
people from traditionally marginalized oppressed groups in our in our country and how um i don't know just how how some of that distress may may look and feel um you know and where where diagnosis or or not diagnosing fits in with those issues yeah, absolutely. Because again, if, if we're coming at it from more of a, like a medical model where we're giving a diagnosis, that sort of by definition means we're saying that the individual has a problem. But it, like you're suggesting, if we use sort of a more multicultural lens, we might see that sometimes there's societal sort of issues. If you think about something like racism or sexism, well, what would be the normal, healthy, natural response to experiencing racism or sexism? It wouldn't be to not have a reaction. It would be to have, you know, lots of reactions, of, lots of reactions. Right. And then they, that individual would actually be having healthy, normal, natural, understandable reactions because the problem doesn't reside within them. It resides within the, 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 the society right? and the environment. Yeah. And so the, it's a, it's actually a healthy reaction to a really unhealthy situation or set of conditions yeah you know again it's it's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all sort of approach like let me kind of just um come up with some kind of made-up examples that maybe kind of are, are illustrative um let's say there's a female student and let's say she wants to pursue something that's kind of more traditionally male dominated like engineering or physics or chemistry and let's say she experiences a lot of sexism um, and she comes in and she's saying, oh, there's something wrong with me, right? That I'm not good enough and, you know, I must, I need to be doing a better job. Helping her realize that, well, what you're encountering is the sexism, right? So it's distressing and we can work on understanding that coping with that and you know there's all sorts of variety of things that that we might want to explore that could be beneficial but sort of as a starting point you labeling yourself as the problem isn't really going to be the most beneficial place to start because that's not really an accurate understanding of the dynamics that are going on on the other hand let's think about maybe there's like a um a male student who is pursuing um let's say you know uh, chemistry or physics or something like that and then at some point he has the sort of realization that actually what what might be an excellent um, career fit for him might be being a science teacher in a middle school or elementary school or high school or something like that he might you know experience sort of a lot of like self-judgment that somehow you know that's not good that's not manly enough that's going to be bad i'm not going to be able to be a good provider for my family and again, you know, is there anything wrong with being a science teacher, right? But but for him, it, it might feel like that's somehow bad, and that even the fact that he had that idea is is somehow means that he's flawed or deficient or defective. So those are great examples, and given that we live in relation to other people, like that, that nobody grows up in a bubble without being influenced in all these complex ways by our families and friends and society, culture, uh, politics, all of it, um, our identities, the intersectionality of our identities. What, um, how, how do you, how do you work with students around those 
expectations that they have for themselves about what um, what they're supposed to become, right? So wherever we pick that up, we you know, let's say we, we hit a crisis point or we hit a point where we're we're not doing so well, and and maybe want to consider other career choices or other life paths, but there's so much. Um, external pressure potentially and then internal pressure that that's not okay uh how do you how do you begin to kind of help people work with i hear you saying you try to really look at the external layers like what's the influence of all these external things and so once we become aware that those are external pressures um that that we may be imposing on ourselves we still have to look at how we talk to ourselves and what we believe about ourselves. Uh, how, how do you, how do you approach that? Like that voice in your head and what it's telling you? Yeah. I, I really like how you kind of explain that layers approach. Cause I feel like oftentimes that's um, really a good way to look at it. And again, there's going to be a lot of individual differences. I know some people that I've worked with, even just verbalizing it with me as, as they kind of talk about it. And as we kind of discuss it, they sort of something clicks for them. They're like, well, that doesn't really make sense. You know, if I want to be a middle school science teacher, then I should do that. And sometimes then that's it, you know, that's sort of like the one layer. And after that brief little discussion, it it's resolved. Um, but sometimes there are additional layers. Um, but again, too, sometimes I feel like people will be pleasantly surprised. You know, I've had folks I've worked with before who maybe were contemplating career changes. And, you know, even before coming to see me spent sometimes, you know, months, even maybe longer, you know, almost in, in the realm of years, sort of like pursuing something that they really didn't feel like was a good fit and just having like a tremendous amount of concern about what, you know, reactions family or friends might have. And once they finally kind of work up the courage to float the idea with, their family members, sometimes they're really pleasantly surprised for the family members. Oh yeah, that's, that's great. That makes total sense. You know, like I'm, you know, and they're, they re receive a lot more support than they would have anticipated. Um, certainly that, that's not always the case. And then there's, you know, more, more layers and kind of, you know, potentially more work to be done. But oftentimes, like I said, you know, people are kind of pleasantly surprised with how supportive others in their life may actually be. And if, um, I guess I'm I guess I'm just aware of how how much uh I'm just thinking about how much culture can really play into that. I'm just thinking about some students that maybe are here um on visas from other countries and just the um that that maybe their government has sponsored their education in a certain field and uh that there may be just a tr tremendous amount of pressure from the family to be come a certain X and that, that, that really can create like that sometimes it's lovely and workable. And we just work with students to take that risk, to have that conversation. And then other times there really are other factors that um, make it extremely difficult to uh, gain um, external acceptance or acknowledgement. Uh, or support for for making that kind of change. Um, to speak to that a little bit more, when there's these more complicated layers, I think sometimes it's important um, to be able to kind of have a moment where um, sometimes a lot of these 
barriers and challenges you're talking about, I mean, they're really real, especially for me as, as a white guy who doesn't necessarily have a lot of those experiences. Um, it's important to have a moment of kind of acknowledgement that like, there isn't necessarily a perfect answer for that, right? I can, um, cause that's not gonna be helpful if, if they come in and what they get from me is always some slick answer about, well, you could just do this or well, you could just do that. And that's not really going to be helpful. So I kind of see it too as sort of like a, a modeling that like, oh wow, I get it. That is a really, sometimes it's a, you know, um, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place. You know, there isn't an easy answer. There isn't an easy um, way out of that situation. And at least sort of to be able to, to be okay with that in the sense of like being there and that struggle with them, you know, kind of try to get in the, get in, get in there with them and say, okay, this is tough. There's no easy answers, but I want to try to, you know, be here with you and be supportive as we try to, um, explore this together as best we can. And then I think that links into what you're saying about that internal self-critic, because if what they get from me is like, oh, well, you could just be thinking about it better. You could just be more positive. You could just be X, Y, or Z. That's just going to sort of, if they have that internal self-critic kind of exacerbate that, be like, yeah, like I went and saw the psychologist and he agreed that I'm not really handling this well. Um, um, you know, you know, yeah. Oh, Sorry, serious. I was just thinking like rather than being willing to like be in that agony with with somebody and validate how how impossible it feels at that at that time. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm thinking about kind of some of the more challenging um, and some of this, you know, I've before working at the university, I've worked in um, community mental health centers and the Department of Corrections and I've seen some um, uh, some people dealing with some really really incredibly difficult things. And I, looking back on some of that work, I think sometimes perhaps the most important thing that I was able to offer was sort of something along the lines of like, wow, I think you're dealing with that better than I could, you know, you're just doing like an awesome job. And it's really, you know, I'm kind of examples I'm thinking of are people coming from maybe, um, you know, countries where there's war and things like that and kind of some of the things that they've experienced and witnessed and kind of still carry with them are just so incredibly painful. Um, and for me to just sort of like compliment them and say like, man, you're just really resilient and I just really admire and, and respect you. But I think that if you, you know, years later, if you ask them, that might be maybe the most therapeutic thing I was able to offer them, you know, not some kind of like you know, I said slick answer about, oh, well, just think about it differently, but really sort of just that sort of like respect for, for the resilience that they have. I think that gets into a, another part of this conversation, which is, you know, do counselors offer solutions? So whether for these, maybe there's just a couple of layers to someone's difficulty, or there's all these deep, complex, intersecting layers, but um, I'm coming to you for help. What is it that you actually, what is it that you actually provide me? Um, Cause you're saying, you're saying you don't, you don't have the answers. I'm hearing you say you don't have the answers for me. You don't have the solution. Well, Sarah, just do, just do this and it'll all be, it'll all be better. Yeah. So I kind of using another analogy, I like to think about, um, 
kind of like if you went to a, a medical doctor, there'd be like an informed consent process where you would say, oh, I'm having, let's say, knee pain or something like that. And then they would kind of run through the options with you. There's physical therapy, there's surgery, there's all these options. So to make sure I'm on the same page with the person I'm working with, I like to kind of explore that. And and um, again, I'm thinking back to the kind of earlier in my career, especially dealing with, like I said, some of these, um, you know, kind of really more um, challenging situations, people coming from countries where there was war and kind of all the experiences that come with that. And sometimes I guess it was almost me and my perfectionism thinking that, oh, well, they're coming to me. I, I need to be able to give them something, do something for them. But sometimes them being able to just say, hey, listen, I, I them almost telling me, I know you're not going to have a quick fix for that. Like, that wasn't why I came here. I, if, if you listen and, and, and be supportive, I just want a safe place to be able to, to process through some of all that. So some of that, I guess, is, you know, I said, you know, my development over my career is realizing that actually sometimes people come in wanting a quick fix, but sometimes they, they don't. They're actually maybe wiser than, than, than I am, or at least than I was earlier on in, in my career. You had talked before about um, when, when we were preparing for this, about the idea that counselors don't, don't solve other people's challenges or problems um but that but i think you said something like we we support people and help people realize that they have the the skills and tools and abilities to begin to solve their own challenges is something like that i think you said it a lot better <laughs> yeah there's a saying i actually i don't even remember where i first saw it or heard it but it's the idea of someone asking a counselor you know, how do you do it? How do you listen to people's problems all day? And kind of the wise counselor responding, well, I don't listen to problems, I listen for solutions. But I think that does really capture sort of my view of the counseling process is, um, you know, another analogy I might use that if you go to see, you, let's say you want to get more physically fit, you go to see a personal trainer. Well, the personal trainer can sometimes give some guidance or, you know, feedback in terms of different techniques or strategies you might want to use but it's really you doing the exercises that's going to provide the gains. Um, there's nothing they can do for you or to you. So I, I, I look at counseling sort of the same way. I definitely offer folks whatever I, I can that I think will be helpful. But at the end of the day, as they're kind of describing their problems, their concerns, what I'm really listening for is just sort of their inner strength and their inner resilience. And just to be able to, um, kind of summarize that back to them or just let them know what I'm seeing and for them to kind of then be able to sort of internalize that or at least realize what was already internally there and then then they can kind of take it and, and run with it um, from there but ultimately yeah it's, it's really it's really coming from them I'm just sort of maybe um, helping them discover it and I'm not really giving them something that they didn't already innately have at least the capacity for themselves I'm just sitting here listening to you and wondering how how did you get into this field? Like what what drew you to do this kind of work? Yeah, so I'll, I'll try to make a, a long story um, short. Um, my my dad was actually in the field. He was a um, licensed mental health counselor and a licensed marriage and family therapist, and um, he, um, I guess, maybe partly due to his training, was was um, pretty supportive of me in terms of wanting to always 
never influenced me too strongly one way or the other um, with what I was doing. Um, I do think at some point, though, he may have made some indication about um, about money and you don't make that much money and you maybe do business or something if you want to make more money. And I remember initially in college um, taking like a business class and at the same time I was also, also taking a psychology class and I was just kind of really drawn to um, drawn to, to, to psychology. So I don't know if there's something kind of just that, that resonated with me. And I was fortunate that again, you know, I, when I, you know, mentioned to, to him and my mom that I was interested in, in pursuing that farther as a major, you know, they were really, you know, supportive of that and kind of under understanding of, of that. Um, but then, yeah, then, then I still didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So kind of as I took courses, I kind of just was really interested and kept going. And, and um, even now, all these years later, I think that's probably why I'm in the positions I am now as kind of a, a counselor in a university counseling center where I can kind of be a generalist and then also teaching at a community college where I can teach a variety of courses because I still feel like I, I don't quite know exactly what I want to do when I grow up sort of thing. You know, I'm still in the process of kind of learning and exploring and, and everything. So I'm really fortunate that the positions I have allow me to, to um, yeah, just continue to kind of explore all of these ideas because I feel like everything I learn professionally helps me personally and everything I learn personally helps me professionally. So I'm, um, I feel incredibly fortunate that I'm able to, to, to have the, the career that I do. I think that you said you hit the nail on the head with that last part about everything you learn professionally helps you personally and everything you learn personally helps you professionally. I was wondering, um, cause I think that's one of those extra benefits of, becoming a mental health professional is, is it's, it's not therapy to become a mental health professional, but there's, there's, it's not free therapy, but you learn so much about yourself along the way and get a lot of, hopefully get a lot of feedback from others about how they're experiencing you and uh, maybe what you need to work on to be better at your job. And so I, I guess I'm wondering if you could highlight a couple of ways in which, you know, you feel like you've, you've had to learn this stuff and work on this stuff in your own life areas that you've um, you've noticed that you struggle with and have to keep working on even to this day with all your um, credentials and education and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know that when we were preparing for this, an example that, that came up that I think um, really kind of captures it for me is that when I was preparing to take my licensure exam, um, so this is, you know, after I've been through grad school and done all of that. So at this point, I, I know a lot about psychology, right? Um, but it was actually my my wife. We were dating at the time, but she was kind of inquiring about, it was, it was summertime and I was preparing for the exam and I was spending a lot of time and energy. In fact, I was, you know, not really spending much time with her um, and kind of just asking me questions. Okay, so how's the process going? And essentially, I was taking... Um, pre-tests and scoring really well and this is a pass fail exam no one will ever know or care what your score was um, and I was doing really well but there was something about this sort of perfectionism inside of me that wouldn't let me be okay with just passing the exam something was just sort of like driving me and compelling me to overstudy and over prepare 
And um, I think even to this day, it's something that I'll sometimes share with people that I that I work with because I think there was a, um, sometimes we have a way of kind of misleading ourselves. And one thing I always sort of said to myself was that I'll do this now, right? so that it'll pay off later, right? I'm gonna work really hard now, I'm gonna be perfectionistic now, and I'll enjoy the fruits of my labor later. But now I'm sort of realizing that it's not that easy, that it, you can't just turn off a switch, that it's really more like a, a habit that's developed over time. Um, so even now, you know, I would say that it it's still can be a challenge for me. I have a five-year-old daughter and I want to be the best dad that I possibly can and I want to be there for her. But because of all those years I spent in grad school and even after grad school preparing for my licensure exam, being a perfectionist, trying to put work before play so that one day, you know, one day in the future I could enjoy my life more, it doesn't really work like that. I still, I feel like I have some bad habits that I'm constantly trying to remind myself of. You know, I'll find myself pulling out my phone, checking my work email when I should really just be, you know, at the park playing with my daughter. Um, Cause it's an email that doesn't need to be responded to right away. The other person, you know, it's, there's nothing urgent about it, but I, you know, I'm paying for some of those bad habits that I've developed over the years and, and I'm getting, I'm getting, better certainly I think and I'm aware of that but that's sort of something I sometimes will share with people I work with is like um, you know if you want to be wiser than me you know you'll start working on some of these habits earlier rather than later because it's not like flipping a switch if you get in some of these bad habits you know if it takes years to develop those bad habits it can take like years to 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 break them so I feel like sometimes that's helpful to sort to sort of share that even somebody like myself you know it's it's not enough just to have the sort of um, insight. You actually have to practice good habits if you want to develop healthier habits like that. I'm having, I'm wanting to ask you about what are some of those healthier habits, um, but I also feel like I want to respond less cognitively and just more from the heart to what you just shared. So I'm going to do the heart stuff first, and then, and then if if you do want to talk a little bit about maybe some healthier habits, um, I know we've they've been implied in our conversation but not entirely explicit yet so um the, from the heart stuff first i was um i was really relating to you as you were sharing that story and it led me to remember when i was in graduate school to become a counselor and these two brothers one was in a phd program and one was in the master's program who were also preparing to be counselors died in a just awful freak car accident and it had a you know I wasn't close to them but a lot of the students that were in the program were close to them they were very well known and well loved and um, I don't know it was just a really freak accident and uh, I was you know I was early in my in my many year journey to get get where I am now professionally. And it, I, I had dealt a lot with perfectionism in my life, um, partly as a response to the chaos and uncertainty and poverty in my, in my family growing up. I was like, oh, if I do really well in school, that's gonna be, that's gonna be a way out of some of this stuff. And it gave me a sense of control and agency and I got a lot of great validation from teachers. And it was like, it really worked for me for a really long time to approach 
uh, academics with like just you know nothing but like a 100 percent would would be good enough for me right and then these brothers died and i was like wow like what if one like wanting to try to make that loss meaningful in some way that it it was a terrible tragedy but asking myself what could i learn from them and that the, it was this just visceral realization that like maybe i'm never going to get where i want to go and i know that might sound morbid but i think it's also part of that underlying fear and uncertainty that human beings just carry with us is that we we don't know when we might die and that we can be right in the middle of living life full speed ahead and something like that happens and it it made me decide that i wanted to try just like appreciate where i was on the path and that even though i you know i still knew that i had farther to go what would it be like to approach my education um as if i didn't have the guarantee that i was really ever going to arrive and and could i slow down and start letting each day and each step along the way be enough that you know it was enough for what it was and that there would be more hopefully but that like this moment this step this you know this homework but also this walk and this meal and this friendship and it really radically began to transform how i approached school and also i think was the beginning of maybe really beginning to love myself and be kind to myself um, and so I wanted to share that story. Yeah, no, that really resonates with me the way you say that. And um, actually what's what's coming up for me is, again, thinking about my five-year-old daughter about, um, you know, I feel like the most important thing I want for her is for her to love herself and to be kind for herself and realizing that probably the biggest impact I'll have is is the modeling you know um so even sometimes honestly now that's something that sometimes um i'll see little things that she does where sometimes she's kind of being hard on herself you know whatever kind of project she's working on and it it, it does really strike me because i i potentially even now some of that's because you know if she sees me doing certain habits or whatever and and so that 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 idea of time to um, really strikes me is that I'm like, you know, there's not a, um, the, t the time is now, like these are her formative years. So if I want to model being kind and loving myself so that she'll have that internalized one day, it, it, it's, I can't kick the can down the road and say, oh, well, it, it's okay to be, you know, not that way now. And, you know, I'll figure it out eventually. And then when I get everything just perfect the way I want my work to be and the way I want this and that to be, well, then I'll really be able to be there a hundred percent for her and do everything perfectly for her. It's like now we're the formative years. So it's really kind of like, um, yeah, that kind of gives me an, an extra degree of, um, of urgency about really, you know, the, the, the consequences of not being kind to yourself, not loving yourself, not being compassionate to yourself. Um, 
you know, there's no better time than now to, to start working. And, on that. and something that my years ago, a really great therapist who saw me for counseling, she, she was, she would just hit on that again and again and again, that, that, um, first of all, if, if we want to make a change, we have to be aware. We have to be aware of what, um, what we're doing to ourselves, what we're saying, what we've experienced. We, we need to be aware. Um, and then if anything is ever going to be different, we only have the present moment to make it so. And she just over and over again, like, not that you have to make a change. It's your choice, right? You, you can change or not change, but like, this is it. This is really all we have to to work with and try to integrate those things. Um, and again, it's easier said than done. And there's a lot of cliches about it, but I, it's, it's, um, I think it's one of the hardest things any of us can do is, is try to see and be what we want, what we want um, in this moment. And I actually hear my little, my little baby crying outside the, the door. Um, what are some of those so we're, I think we're hinting at some of those like habits of, of thought and feeling that can be maybe more helpful or help people move in a little bit of a healthier direction. Um, are there, are there others that you want to share things we haven't gotten to? Yeah, actually, um, along the lines of what you were just talking about, um, a few years ago when, when I saw a counselor myself, um, one of the distinct memories I have from that is I was running late one time, just a few minutes late to a session with him. So I sent him a text message and I said, I, I don't remember how I phrased the text message, but as soon as I got there, he was just like, let's talk about this text message. Because I, I, I guess there's something about the text message where I was sort of like overly apologetic and sort of like almost kind of like, you know, and he's like, like, what is this about, right? And uh, you know, he's like, "Do you think that I was going to be like really mad or upset that you were running a few minutes late?" And I was like, "No, of course not. Like, absolutely not." And he's like, "So what? What is this all about?" Um, but it's really helpful for me because it's just again, it's all those little moments throughout the day when stuff comes up, and that's just sort of my mo. That's my natural tendency is that I. Um, you know, my autopilot is just to kind of beat myself up about stuff and be kind of harsh and mean and critical. But I kind of constantly try to remind myself of that. Um, so that in those little moments, because I think they all add up, you know, um, to realize, okay, if that's my tendency, then I need to really err on the side. Um, because I don't, I can't think of a time in my life where I've ever run into problems because I, I was too kind to myself or too compassionate to myself the problem is always the other way around um so just that that uh, you know it's almost like a mantra where i'll kind of say oh yeah this is you doing what you did when you texted him and don't do that you know <laughs> so anyways that's that's you know uh well there's a that brings up that brings up an interesting response that i sometimes hear from students where i say well what are you afraid of if you if you start being kinder to yourself and i don't know if you've asked that question or gotten responses but some themes that come up is like well i'm just going to wind up you know dropping out of school and living under a bridge somewhere i'm just going to like totally let if i if i start being gentler or kinder to myself as I go, right? Like as I go through my life, as I stumble through the day, as I struggle, as I make mistakes, 
you know, like if I, if I'm kind to myself as those things are happening, I'm just going to stop having any drive or motivation and I'm just going to become like, you know, not, not success. I'm going to be a failure. I'm just going to be a failure. I'm not even going to care that I'm a failure. It's, it's that sort of fear that I hear students have. I don't know if you've had some similar responses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Definitely. So I think it's helpful to clarify that um, the idea is not to lessen your standards or be less ambitious or do less. It's really understanding it again, kind of an analogy I like to share is that if I give two people an ax and I tell them both to chop down as many trees as they can, and one person stops every once in a while and takes a break and sharpens their saw and the other person just keeps on, you know, uh, working really hard trying to cut as much as they can, but never, never sharpens their saw. Um, you know, one person's going to be working harder, but the other person's actually going to be uh, accomplishing more. So yeah, when I work with people, I'm not saying I want you to try to accomplish less. I'm just trying to help you understand that, um, uh, you'll actually accomplish more if you are kind and supportive, uh, uh, of yourself um and i think another another kind of um example that i'll use that sometimes will be helpful for people is to think about relationships you've had with other people relationships you've had with maybe like a coach you really liked or a teacher that you've really liked and usually people will be able to realize that the coaches and the teachers that have really kind of inspired them to do their best work are actually the ones that are kind and loving and supportive, not mean and harsh and, and critical. So it, it stands to reason that the same would be for your relationship with yourself, you know, being really harsh and critical of yourself. At the end of the day, it doesn't really end up with more productivity. It just ends up with you being exhausted, anxious, depressed, and you're not going to be productive like that. But the more you're kind and loving and compassionate, the stronger you'll be, and then the more productive you'll be. So I think just, um, that different perspective can be very helpful as well. Yeah, I've often thought about that for myself and invited other people to think about it. Like if that voice in my head that that is criticizing me, um, one, asking my asking myself, like, what does that voice really want for me? It sounds really mean. Like if I were to print it out and show you what it was saying, it sounds mean. But what does it want for me? And I, when I, sometimes when I'm able to really connect with that, I'm like, oh my gosh, it, it does. It wants me to succeed. It wants me to do well. But it, it has such a misguided way of going about it, you know? Like, and so even if I can have compassion for like, wow, yeah, that, that's a coach that if I had hired that coach to motivate me, I would fire that coach. And I try to really replace that coach with, with someone who was, more just encouraging and kind, but that that deep down, like that inner critic for me, like she just wants, she wants me to do well. And she's terrified, you know, she's terrified that maybe I'm, you know, that I'm not going to live up to whatever impossible standards she set. But 
Um, but I, I have found it helpful to think about, yeah, if I could turn that voice in my head into a person, into a person outside of myself that follows me around all the time, would I allow that person to keep following me around and talking to me like that? Or would I say, you know, I think I need to hire someone else to do, to do this job because you're bringing me down. You're not making this any easier uh, to go about my life and do these hard things when you're so hard on me all the time. Yeah, definitely. Sometimes too, if, if, if I'm feeling stuck myself or if I'm working with somebody who's feeling stuck kind of along the lines of what you're saying, sometimes writing it out and writing out in both ways, like write it out sort of the way that it automatically pops into your head and then write it out in a, in, you know, an alternative way that might be, you know, um, a little bit more supportive and just sort of compare the two. And now, which do you think, and, and maybe not even not prejudging, right? Saying, okay, I don't know. Let, I'm not sure exactly how this is going to work. What is going to be more beneficial and kind of that, that realization that um, it probably is going to do more harm than good if you're, if you're being overly harsh. Anything else that you want to say, and it can be related or unrelated to what we've been talking about that you would want to make sure um, you, you share before we end this conversation that may be something you would say to a young Ryan just starting out in college or, um, a, you know, a student that might be listening to this. Yeah. So I, as you say that, I'm thinking probably the young Ryan, if you would have asked me a question like that in an interview, I would have quickly thought of all the things I could have said or should have said or whatever, and, and tried to cram a bunch into these last few minutes. But I think, uh, think the, the Ryan I am now is, I think, wise enough, hopefully, to realize that we, we did the best we could, and it probably wasn't a perfect interview, but um, I think people will get more out of it by just kind of letting the points we made um, speak for themselves rather than trying to cram too much in in the final moments here. That's lovely, and that's, to me, I'm laughing because I'm like, oh, that's an example of practicing, right, in this moment, in this moment, how can we apply what we've been talking about? Um, I know you and I both did a lot of prep for this and it came out, it came out like it came out, right? And so that idea of prepare and then let go and try to just be, um, I really appreciate this time with you and I appreciate, I know that one of the things, you know, we've developed this podcast for, for students, but also there's a um, benefit to me to get to spend time with people I work with who are often just shut away behind closed doors. Um, you know, talking to students. And so it's, it's really special to get to spend some time with you, Ryan. Thank you. Yeah. Thank, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to CWC Talks, a podcast from the University of Florida Counseling and Wellness Center. For new episodes, show notes, and to leave feedback or suggestions, please visit counseling.ufl.edu slash CWC Talks.